from ink-black darkness and bottomless emptiness came a light. And then another and another. This is the story of how it all started. All we see, all we don't see. But what or who was behind the nothingness turned something? Is there really a God to encounter? I want to welcome all of you to our brand new series, Encounter. I'm pretty excited about it. Over the next several weeks, we're going to talk about what it means to encounter God, whether you're a student or you're an adult. That is to encounter him personally in our lives, as well as as a community, and if you're family, in your family as well. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to examine an ancient wonder of the Old Testament. It's called the tabernacle. I'm surprised nobody applauded for that. In fact, I am sure that when I said tabernacle, some of you immediately had a word go through your mind, boring. But it's not going to be boring. The tabernacle in the Old Testament was God's meeting and dwelling place with his people. And there are lessons and secrets and mysteries in the tabernacle that need to be unlocked today if we're going to understand what it means to meet with God in our lives today. So you're going to find it really helpful and, and experiential for your life, so don't miss it. But before we talk about this tabernacle experience of encountering God, I want to raise a question this weekend. And the question is, is there a God to encounter? Is there a God to encounter? Now, some of you, as soon as I ask that question, you're thinking to yourself, well, yeah, I mean, that's why I'm here. I believe there is a God. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. But, you know, I, I also know that uh, um, in our midst are, are some folks who are agnostic. Now, they may not call themselves agnostic, but, but you know what I mean. You struggle with believing in God. Some days it's easy. And some days you question and wonder, does God exist? And I know that there are parents here, some grandparents. And if you're raising your kids up in this world, and if they're going to eventually someday go to a, a secular school or college or university, you and I both know they're going to be assaulted with the idea that the God of the Bible does not exist. And it's going to shake their faith to the foundation. And you've got to be prepared to help them work through that. And those of you who are students and facing that or in it right now, you need to understand that, that God's provided a lot of evidence that speaks to his existence. And of course, we all have friends and co-workers and maybe even family members who question the existence of God. Don't you want to be able to address that? And show them that as Christians, we're not ignoramuses. We don't just bury our head in the sand. And we're not fideous who just say, well, I believe because I believe. Why don't you want to be able to compel people toward understanding that, that God actually exists. So to help us with that, I want you to use your imagination for a moment. Let's all go back to school. Let's all go back to our, to our freshman year of college. And if you're younger than that, grow up to the freshman year of college, all right? Some of you, that's like ancient history, I know, but... So I never went to college, so I'm not down on that. Some ways you may be more blessed because of that. But, but let's all imagine we're in our freshman year of college. 
And we're intimidated because one of our courses is Philosophy 101, and the teacher has a reputation for being really hard-nosed and almost impossible to get an A from, and he's extremely intimidating. Class is at 8 a.m. We're seated in an auditorium. We're kind of murmuring, talking to each other, wondering what it's going to be like. And exactly 8 a.m., he comes walking in. Everybody goes silent. He's wearing a tweed jacket, little bow tie, horn glasses. Doesn't even acknowledge our presence. Goes right to the board, turns his back against us. And he scrawls out on the board in big, bold letters with demonstrative strokes, there is no God, Question mark, or, uh, exclamation mark, period. Then he turns around, he looks at us, and he says, class, I want you to understand something. There is no room for the God of the Bible in my classroom. If you came in here believing in God, you're going to leave my class at the end of the semester, and you too will say, there is no God. That's my mission. And for the next several weeks into semester, he takes his lectern and uses it as a bully pulpit to just berate Christianity, to mock the Bible, to tear down the idea that God exists. He's got you reading all kinds of books. He's got you now questioning your own belief, your own faith, to a point you're wondering, do I even believe anymore? And one day you're in the library, your head is in your hand, and all kinds of thoughts are going through your mind, and you accidentally, but not accidentally, scrawl out a question on your notepaper. Is there no God? You go home for a long weekend, and your parents are there, and they can tell something's really bothering you. And they say, what's going on? You explain to them in this class, i got this professor. He's shaking my faith. I, I don't know, Mom, Dad. I don't know if I believe in God anymore. How can we know that God exists? And your mom just smiles at you. You know how moms are. She puts her hand on your shoulder. She says, oh, honey, it's okay. When you go back to class Monday, you look at that professor and you just tell him, there is a God because the Bible says so. And you bury your face in your hands and shake your head. That's not going to work. The Bible does say so. But when you are dealing with people who are unbelievers or people who are skeptics, Oftentimes, it is not enough. They want to know, is there anything outside of the Bible that says so? And what's so cool is that the Bible says so. <laughs> the Bible says, yes, you can look outside of these pages, and there's plenty of evidence for God. I want to turn to just one small passage amidst many about that, Psalm 19. For just a, just a moment, I'll read it to you. Memorized it when I was younger. Psalm 19. I could take you to Genesis, I could take you to the end of Job, I could take you to Isaiah, we could go to Romans, we could go to the book of Colossians, there are many books we could go to and examine that tell us, hey, don't just look in the pages, look outside, look around. But listen to what David writes in Psalm 19, verse 1. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words, the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. 
In other words, we have special revelation, God's word. We also have natural revelation. David says, you want to believe in God? Just look around you. Look at the, look at the world from the macro level. Look at the world from the micro level. It screams that, that God is. So what I want to do in this first message on encountering God and answering the question, is there God to encounter? So I want to look at two, we'll call them, arguments or propositions that led evidence to existence of God. Nobody can prove God in the sense of, poof, there he is. Just like nobody can prove that God isn't either. Remember that. But there's plenty of evidence that seems to indicate that, that God is. And just so you know, this, this all comes out of reading and, and research on my part of people way smarter than me. And I'm going to put them on the blog and on our website later this week. You can go and if you want to check out the resources. These are just a few, though, of some brilliant men and women. Uh, one of them is uh, Dr. William Lane Craig, just probably the best Christian philosopher in the world today. Another is a brilliant mathematician, Dr. John Lennox, who taught at Oxford. He's got all kinds of PhDs and degrees in philosophy and and uh, mathematics and bio and biophysics, etc. He's a smart, smart guy. Dr. Tim Keller, my favorite theologian, uh, and then Anthony Flew, who was an outspoken leading atheist until right before he died in 2010. He became a theist. Not necessarily a Christian, but he finally said, listen, based on the evidence, I have to say there's an intelligent designer behind this world that we live in today. And then Dr. Gerald Schroeder, an Orthodox Jew, MIT, PhD, very brilliant guy. He's got an interesting little video, uh, Proof of God in Five Minutes. You can YouTube that, Dr. Gerald Schroeder. And uh, it doesn't like poof prove God, but it, he does an amazing job in five minutes. And so I'm just going to take a little bit of what I've learned from them and others, and we're going to do like this big overview and just ask ourselves, is there any proof in the universe that God exists? And I want to start with this little proposition. It goes like this. Simply put, the presence of the universe, I believe, the presence of the universe provides plenty of evidence for God's existence. The presence just of the physical universe provides plenty of evidence for God's existence. I'm so glad our students are here because, I mean, you don't have to wait to go to college. They, they get it already in junior high and senior high. They're hearing it from their teachers and they're reading it. You know, God does not exist and science proves that God doesn't exist. Well, you got to listen to the right scientists, right? Not just people who start with a presupposition that there is no God. If you have the presupposition there is no God, then everything that you see and learn, you'll interpret it to that point. Just like I suppose you could say if you start the presupposition there is a God, you do the same. So we're looking at scholars with objective minds who are saying, look, the evidence says there's somebody who's there's something out there that is greater than ourselves. So with that in with that in mind, everything that exists, would you agree with me? Everything that exists has an explanation for why it exists. It may exist by its own nature or something caused it to be present, but everything that exists has an explanation. Take this ball, for instance. Let's imagine that you and I are out walking in the desert, hundreds of miles from civilization. We're on a big hike. We've got plenty of water and food with us. And as we're walking along, we just see this ball sitting there, and it's been there for a while because it's losing its air. It used to be a lot bigger. And you say to me, Dale, how do you think that ball got there? And I look at you and I say, well, I think it's been there forever. And you look at me like, don't be funny. 
I'm asking you a serious question. How do you think that ball got here? I mean, do you think somebody else came along? Did a windstorm, you know, pick it up and drop it here? I mean, did aliens drop it from space? How do you think this thing got here? And I say to you, I'm being serious. I think that ball has always been there forever. Now, you probably thought it was a little weird. Now you're thinking I'm really weird. The reason why is reality tells you that you don't get something out of nothing. There has to be some kind of cause behind it all. So now, take this ball and blow it up. And think about it representing the whole universe. You don't get something out of nothing. How did this universe get here? Where did this come from? If the universe has an explanation, if the universe has an explanation for its existence, I suggest to you, that God is the best explanation. Like I said, there are a lot of people who don't believe in God. And they try to find a different explanation than the God of the Bible. And I'm going to tell you what, some of the explanations that they come up with take more faith to believe in than believing in God. If you really think it through. The evidence, I believe, and many scholars, like you just saw a few, and even those who aren't Christians, admit that it points to something far greater than ourselves. So let's, let's dig into the cosmos just a little bit deeper. Most experts, if you ask them, how do you define the universe? will tell you that the universe is made up of space-time reality, of mass and of energy. The universe is made up of space-time reality and of mass and of energy. So if the universe is all those things, space-time reality, mass, and energy, then whatever caused the universe cannot be any of those things. Now, there's some people recently who have said, well, the universe just created itself. But think about that for a minute. If the universe created itself, that means the universe had to exist in the first place to be able to create itself in the second place. So if the universe is, is, is all those things, then whatever caused the universe cannot be any of those things. In other words, the cause of the universe must be non-physical, immaterial being, which is beyond space and time. So let's talk about that cause. Everything I said so far, everything that exists has a cause. Just, I mean, that's, that's how we look at life. It's how we think about life. So, for instance, the theory of relativity, Einstein, second law of dynamics, Hubble, and then later on, you know, the Hubble telescope and the technology we have are all telling scientists, scientists, whether they're Christians or not, that our universe actually had a beginning. And we know that beginning, we've been learning about this for years in textbooks, that beginning's called the what? The big? <laughs> the big what? Bang. That sounded better, right? The big bang. Not this slow little process. Honestly, like a big bang. And if you delve into the materials, because we're on a way high overview, you'll find out that that big bang was not chaos. It was precision. Like somebody lit the fuse and had it all packed and, and, and stacked the right way because it has to be so precise or we don't exist. Life doesn't exist. They know it started with a big bang because it's expanding, accelerating, and now slowing down. And they take technology and math and science, and they trace it backwards. And they go, if it's been accelerating and now slowing down, it must have had a beginning. And they even calculate how old the universe is. I mean, the technology and 
science we have these days is incredible. And so our, our universe has this, has this beginning. Who lit the fuse? Who caused the bang? Even Richard Dawkins, popular atheist, says that, yes, it is possible that something caused all of this to come in being. And in fact, in Time magazine, he's quoted as saying, there could be something incredibly grand and incomprehensible and beyond our present understanding that caused this universe to come into being. And we believe that evidence from what we see naturally and specifically points to the God of the Bible. Physicist Paul Davies said, the coming to being of the universe, as discussed in modern science, is not just a matter of imposing some sort of organization upon a previous incoherent state, but literally the coming into being of all physical things from nothing. So we can confidently say, based on science, that the universe began to exist at some point and once again, the evidence points to God himself. So listen, whatever created the universe has to be timeless. And whatever is timeless must be unchanging. And anything that is unchanging must be non-physical and immaterial since material things are constantly changing at the molecular and atomic levels. Therefore, such a cause must be without a beginning and uncaused itself. And doesn't that make the scriptures even more fascinating in our Lord as well? Look at what it says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. Say it with me. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What does that mean? It means he's what? Timeless and unchanging. In order for the universe to exist, to be caused, it must be caused by one which is immaterial, timeless, it doesn't change. And over in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, it says, And now, in these final days, he has spoken to us through his Son. God promised everything to the Son as an inheritance. And through his Son, he created the universe. He created the universe. So we've taken like this big flyover at a huge high level. There's so many more exciting things that are happening in science today. I don't understand it all. I love reading about quantum physics and I love reading about the universe and all these things because it just keeps pointing to God more and more and more. Got in my car early this morning. The moon was partly uh, shining and, and I was just driving along and I was thinking about Psalm 19. I was thinking about the message today and all of a sudden I found myself caught up in worship. On a macro, micro level, God just shouts at us every day, I am, I am, I'm here. I'm here for you, and you're there for me. That's when we find true satisfaction is when we connect the creation with the creator. But I want to look at one more argument. This is the argument from morality. Just as people say, you know, the big bang caused the universe, there's a big bang when it comes to morality. Let me tell you what I mean by that, all right? We live in a world today or first, let me give you a proposition. That would be better. The proposition simply goes like this. The presence of morality, just like the universe, provides plenty of evidence for the existence of God. We live in a world today, when it comes to morality, where, where it is taught and believed increasingly so that morals are relative. Truth is relative. Moral relativism. 
What that simply means is what's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. What's moral for you is moral for you. What's moral for me is moral for me. And I should not ever impose my moral or my truth on you. And I agree with that to a point. But we live in a culture today that tells us that moral absolutes are the cause of all the troubles in our world today. And particularly Christians, because we do believe, if you're an honest, born-again, Christ-centered, Bible-based believer, that there are moral absolutes in God's Word. Moral absolutes that, as believers, we must live by. Moral absolutes that we're told lovingly to declare. Moral absolutes that if you violate them, God says eventually there are consequences. And the world tells us we are a problem. Because the world tells us, tells your students. They hear it in music, they read it, they see it in movies and video games. It's there all the time. They live in it. The world says to us, the truth is relative. There's your truth and my truth. But think about this with me for just a minute. Just use your mind for a minute. If I say to you, listen, there's no such thing as moral absolutes. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. I've just made a moral absolute. I just have said to you that my truth is absolute, that there's no absolute truth. And when you counter that with me, it makes me grumpy. Because it's it's an absolute for me. Now, there are things, I agree, in, in culture that we assign feelings and truth to that aren't really in and of themselves one way or the other. Let me give you an example. If I go like this in our culture here in America, unless you're from another country, if I go like this, it just means what? Come here, right? Come here. But if I go, and I've been warned, and so I avoid it, if I go to other countries like in Asia and other parts of the world, and I go like this, this is how you solicit a prostitute. Or this is how you call a little dog. And it's an insult. It's wrong. It's highly offensive. So I have to go like this. There's nothing wrong with this. See what I'm saying? There's nothing wrong with it. It's what I assign to it. But there are some things in the world, in the culture, whether I'm in Calcutta or Jakarta or Hanoi, or Kathmandu, or Minneapolis, that everybody agrees in here, that's wrong. Let me give you an example. Imagine a little girl, four or five years old, standing out in the middle of 494. And you see that, and you don't do anything about it. And the cars run her over. There's not a person alive who's mentally sound that would look at you and say, that was good that you did that. We would all be aghast. Everything in us would say, that was wrong of you. Why didn't you rescue that girl? That was right to rescue. Now, where does that come from? See, it doesn't matter who you are, what culture you're from. That's all endemic. It's all deep down inside. It's part of our DNA. We all have a sense of right and wrong. Where? Does that come from? Now, a lot of us are trespassers. So, you mean by that? A lot of us trespass against what we know in our gut is the right thing. 
We trespass against us and do the wrong thing. We know it's wrong, but we trespass. And the Bible says to us, if you trespass long enough on areas that you know are wrong, and you keep doing it, eventually you'll believe that what's wrong is right. And that's what our kids are, again, inundated with. It's the frog in the kettle. You know, that where it's a slow boil, and the frog doesn't know it's boiling to death. My parents were missionaries among Stone Age people in Papua New Guinea who never heard about God, who didn't have the Bible, who never knew a thing about the Ten Commandments. They didn't even wear clothes. They had no outside influence. But when they showed up, these people knew that adultery was wrong, knew that murder was wrong, knew that theft was wrong, and they worshipped. They worshipped ancestors and stars and moon and, and all kinds of things. See, those are primitive people. But they still had a sense of right and wrong, just like you and I have a sense of right and wrong. Say, well, they're primitive people, they worship their ancestors. We worship money, is that much different? We worship success, we worship our bodies, we worship sex, we worship, we're always filling our life with something, we're always looking for something to complete us. I want to read to you a letter from a secularist named John D. Steinrucken, Dr. John D. Steinrucken. In an article in American Thinker, entitled Secularism's Ongoing Debt to Christianity. I want you to listen to this guy. He said, although I am a secularist, atheist, if you will, I accept that the great majority of people would be morally and spiritually lost without religion. Can anyone seriously argue that crime and debauchery are not held in check by religion? Is it not comforting to live in a community where the rule of law and fairness are respected? Would such be likely if Christianity were not here to provide a moral compass to the great majority? Do we secularists not benefit out of all proportion from a morally responsible society? An orderly society is dependent on a generally accepted morality. Did you hear that? An orderly society is dependent on a generally accepted morality. There could be no such morality without religion. Has there ever been a more perfect and concise moral code than the one Moses brought down from the mountain? Those who doubt the effect of religion on morality should seriously ask the question, just what are the immutable moral laws of secularism? Be prepared to answer if you are honest that such laws simply do not exist. The best answer we can ever hear from secularists to the question is a hodgepodge of strained relativist talk of situational ethics. They can cite no overriding authority other than that of fashion. For the great majority in the West, it is the Judeo-Christian tradition which offers a template. So here's the secular saying, yep, we need rules. We need guidelines. We need a moral code. The moral code came from the great moral giver, God. Part of the big bang was a moral bang as well. John Lennox, the Christian eminent uh, mathematician and professor at Oxford at one time, writes in his book, God's Undertaker, about the atheist Anthony Flew. He said, eminent British philosopher Anthony Flew was for many years a leading intellectual champion of atheism. In a BBC interview, he announced that a superintelligence is the only good explanation of the origin of life and the complexity of nature. Later on, Flew writes that in connection with his recent turning from atheism to theism, quote, follow the evidence where it leads. And what if people don't like it? That's too bad, he says, because there are a whole lot of people that were very unhappy when Flew changed his view 
and started saying it was because he's getting old and senile. But he was alert enough to say, it's not because I'm getting old and senile. It's because that's where the evidence points. See, Pastor Dale, that's all very interesting. It was kind of an interesting sermon, a little different than, than normal, and I kind of liked it. I don't understand all about the universe, but I'll check out those resources on the web. And the argument for morality is really interesting to me, but I just wish there was something more visceral. I just wish there was something more personal in my life that I could look at and say, this gives evidence. This gives evidence to God. So I want to share a little story with you from Rabbi Jonathan Kahn. It's a part of a, a large devotional book that he wrote. And uh, in it, he he takes the, the viewpoint of a, of a spiritual leader talking to a student, mentoring a student. And I just want you to listen to it for a minute. If you want to close your eyes and listen to it so you can focus, that's okay too. We'll start with a teacher. Your life began in darkness, he said, in the darkness of the womb. It was once all you knew, your entire life, your entire world, if you had been asked then to describe life, you would have described it as being dark, warm, and wet. And if someone tried to tell you that there was more to life, another life, another world outside the womb, a world of stars and grass, of flowers and faces, of sandcastles and setting suns, what would you have thought, student? I guess I wouldn't have believed it. I wouldn't have been able to fathom it teacher. But would there be a way that you could have known that this other life, this world beyond the womb actually existed? What evidence would you have had within the womb of that which was beyond the womb, student? I don't know. Teacher, you, you would be the evidence. You, dwelling in the darkness yet with eyes made to see color and light with no ground to walk on, yet with feet made to run, with no air to breathe, and yet with lungs made to breathe air and a voice box with which to speak into the air, with no one's hand to hold, yet with two hands made to hold and be held by the hand of another. You yourself would be the evidence of the life beyond your life in the womb and the world beyond your world. Your very being was the evidence of a world yet to come, and yet you were surrounded by a much smaller world that was unable to answer what was within you. Student, and this reveals, teacher, when you hear of a world beyond this world and a life beyond this life, when you hear of heaven, you're hearing of it as a child in the womb. You've never seen it or touched it, and yet everything within you was made to know this world and live within it. A heart made for a love that is perfect and without condition. A soul yearning for that which is eternal. A spirit longing to dwell in a place of no death, no fears, no tears, no darkness, and no evil. Yet you live in a world of imperfection, of corruption, of pain and evil, of darkness and the absence of love. And as it was in the womb, so too this world can never answer the longings of your heart or the purpose for which you came into existence. And every tear, every sorrow, every disappointment, every unfulfilled longing is just a reminder that you're not home, and that you were made for something more, to be a child of heaven, and that this life is only the beginning of a real life and the matrix of the world to become. See, here's the point. You, you were made, you were made for God. 
And that's why when we go looking for satisfaction anywhere but God, we walk away dissatisfied. Because he created you. And God is never more present than when we allow him to be present in our life. You were made for God. That's why nothing else fits, nothing else works. And that's why I want you to be part of this series. Because we've got to figure out what does this mean? Because I just, I look at my life, I look at so many Christians' lives, and though we say, yes, that God dwells in me, let's be honest with each other, it's dry. It's like a dust bowl in our souls. The only God in us that we really know of is this knowledge of God. But are we aware of this presence of God? We realize that it's not the tabernacle, it's not the temple anymore. The Bible says in Romans 8 that I'm now his residence. God dwells in me. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? But how many of us get up and start our day with this thought, I am the dwelling place of God? Because you are. And when I meet you, I should be meeting God. Because he lives in you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we humble ourselves before you. We confess and acknowledge to you, Lord, that many of us, myself included, have a lot of knowledge about you. We know about your experience in others. But Lord, we, we're like a dry desert. We want, we want to be refreshed with your presence. We want, to be, we want to be aware of your presence. We want to live a life of, of awe because we're so aware of your presence. A life of boldness because we're so aware of your presence. We want to live a confident, Christ-centered life because we're aware of your presence. So Lord, I'm asking you to please do something in our hearts and lives, mine included, in this new series. Lead us to truly encounter you. In Jesus' name.